Episode 66, The Reign of Terror and the Rise of Napoleon, The French Revolution, Part 2. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, last episode I tried to summarize the French Revolution and I realized there's just no way to cover it in one podcast episode. So here we are in part two. So in this episode, we're going to look at the part of the French Revolution that is known as the Reign of Terror and how this will eventually lead to the rise of a new emperor. Now, this is kind of obvious, but the American Revolution didn't have a period known as the Reign of Terror. Like I said last episode, the two revolutions, the American and the French, happened in two very different environments, and they had very different enemies. And this is important. The enemy of the American Revolution was the British government and the British Army and Navy. But the enemy of the French Revolution was, well, whichever Frenchman was against you, whether in policy or class or the type of pants that they wore. So one of the reasons that the French Revolution has a reign of terror is that there were different groups who held power and each was pretty ruthless about eliminating their enemies. While the American Revolution doesn't have a period called the Reign of Terror, there are several other notable revolutions in history that do, including like the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Cultural Revolution under Mao. But that stuff is still over 100 years away at the time of the French Revolution. So before we get into the French Reign of Terror, I should mention that the French monarchy had, for a long time, used some aspects of domestic terror against its own citizens. So this isn't just purely a revolutionary event. It's something that was happening in France before that. And I guess that begs the question, what is domestic terror? Domestic terror is when the government uses fear and force against its own citizens without due process of law. For example, when the government police come and kick down your door, grab you and drag you off to jail without a warrant or without a trial, and then you just sit in jail until they decide to kill you or you maybe rot there forever. Well, that's domestic terror, especially when it's done on a large scale against the enemies of the government. And in the case of domestic terror, it's the government doing these things against its own citizens, not against some foreign enemy. It's against people who are citizens, and maybe they're just protesting the problems of the government, and the government takes them and locks them up. It's domestic terror. When the population is afraid of its own government doing things like this, that means that that population's government is using domestic terror. And I should say here, for the benefit of the NSA or FBI computers or maybe agents who are monitoring this podcast, I am fully in favor of our government. Yes! I guess I should qualify that by saying, yes, I mean the government that was established by the U.S. Constitution in 1789, not the current surveillance police state that we live under. And dear FBI agent, if you disagree with me, then why are you listening to this? Hmm? Hmm. 
Anyway, so domestic terror is when your own government uses illegal or immoral tools that violate the inherent rights of their own citizen in order for that government to keep power or keep control. Sometimes it has the covering or veneer of legality, like the Patriot Act, but it's still clearly wrong and a violation of people's rights. Well, back in revolutionary France, the reign of terror is full of this kind of thing, but to be fair, the monarchy had also been doing this for a long time, arresting its opponents on the flimsiest of charges and holding them in prison, often in the Bastille. This is one of the reasons that the revolution started with a crowd of people storming the Bastille. They saw it as a symbol of oppression and of the government terrorizing its own citizens. The reign of terror in the French Revolution also includes a lot of mob actions, like the storming of the Bastille. That was beforehand, but before the reign of terror, but it was still a mob action. And that happens both in Paris and out in the rest of the country. One of the weird things about the reign of terror was that the people who were most responsible for it were not the far right or the far left extremists. They were sort of in the middle. They were convinced revolutionaries but they were sort of in the middle. They weren't far-left radicals, and they weren't far-right royalists. They were just revolutionaries who thought that the people on either extreme were their enemies. The leaders of the Reign of Terror used jailing and execution on their enemies on both sides, until it eventually caught up with them as well, and they became its victims too. That's why it's said that the French Revolution ate its own children. So we need to introduce the main players in this phase of the revolution. The first player I need to introduce, well, in a way she needs very little introduction. Her name is Madame la Guillotine. The guillotine, which ended up being the symbol of the French Revolution, which wasn't their intention at the beginning, but it became one of the most enduring legacies of the revolution. It was used to kill people. And that's sort of sad, isn't it, that that's the symbol of the revolution. The French Revolution killed so many of its people, mostly by guillotine, that it became the symbol of the whole revolution. The guillotine, for those of you who don't know, was created as a humane, air quotes, way of executing people. Basically, it consisted of a super sharp, heavy blade that hung in a sort of frame, and then a notch below that in the bottom where the accused would put their neck Look up a picture of it, and that will make it clear. The blade would be released by the executioner. It would fall very quickly, and it would very cleanly and quickly remove someone's head from their body, thus completing the execution. It was quick, and it was reliable. It always worked, which wasn't true of every other form of execution out there. So in a sense, it maybe was more humane. But it was still an instrument of execution, and it was used by the French government so frequently that it became more a symbol of terror than of anything else. But the guillotine, which, as I said, became known informally as Madame la Guillotine, was definitely one of the main characters in the French Revolution. Now, last episode, I also mentioned Maximilien Robespierre. I forgot to mention that he has one of the best names of all time, Max Robespierre. It's totally a great pirate name. Robespierre eventually became the leader of a group known as the Jacobins, and he became the leader of the Committee of Public Safety. So, who were the Jacobins that Robespierre was the leader of? 
they were actually just a social club, kind of an intellectual club that had strong pro-republic leanings. At first, they were just loose groups all across Paris, groups of people, mostly intellectuals, who supported the revolution. They were against the monarchy. They were in favor of a republic and a strong constitution. But in Paris, during the three years after the fall of the Bastille, but before the execution of Louis XVI, the Jacobins were kind of the resistance against the existing constitutional monarchists. The Jacobins, especially Robespierre, were outspoken proponents of getting rid of the monarchy and starting a true republic like the United States had done. Once the monarchy finally fell, the Jacobins and Robespierre gained even more control of the assembly. The assembly created, much to their later regret, a small committee that was supposed to give advice to the assembly about keeping things peaceful in Paris. That committee eventually became a sort of quasi-dictatorship led by Robespierre. It was known as the Committee of Public Safety. At first, the committee was fairly moderate, but as it came to be dominated by Robespierre and the Jacobins, it became much more radical and aggressive in pursuing its policy aims. It began to widely use imprisonment without trial, having the National Guard, that's a sort of the French police, arrest people and throw them in jail if they were even slightly anti-revolutionary. And of course, it was the Jacobins and the Committee of Public Safety that decided, were you revolutionary enough or were you anti-revolutionary? And pretty soon, they began to use executions. In the spring of 1794, the committee began to execute its enemies, both on the far left and on the far right. All of this was done in the name of preserving the revolution and the movement towards a republic. But when you have a small committee of men deciding whose views will get them executed and whose views are okay, they're revolutionary enough, well, you don't really have a republic, do you? You have a totalitarian dictatorship. That's what the Committee of Public Safety eventually became, especially under Robespierre. In June of 1794, in the summer, the committee got the assembly to pass a law that suspended all citizens' rights to a public trial and also to having legal assistance at their trial, as long as these were crimes against the revolution. So any crime that you were accused of against the revolution, you lost your right to a public trial and legal assistance. You had a private trial. And the juries in these trials only had two options. You either gave acquittal or you gave death. Those were the only two options for the juries. The time after this law was passed is known as the Great Terror, because even something as ominous as a reign of terror needs to have a really bad period within it known as a Great Terror. Because after this act was passed, the committee executed anybody they wanted to. But the unintended side effect of ramping up the terror was that the people in Paris began to see it for what it was, terror, and even committed revolutionaries began to speak out against it. As public opinion began to turn against him, even within the committee, Robespierre tried to defend himself. On July 26, 1794, only a month and a half after the law had been passed, Robespierre tried to defend himself in front of the assembly. He gave a speech to the assembly, and after that speech, the assembly completely turned on him. That evening, the evening of July 26th, 
he and some other Jacobins were arrested. But before the arrest, Robespierre apparently tried to shoot himself. But he apparently succeeded in only shooting off part of his jaw, and he didn't die. He was taken to jail, and in true reign of terror fashion, he was brought to the guillotine two days later and executed, along with 20 other Jacobins. After this, the reign of terror slowed down, and eventually it wound out and ended. The Great Terror period lasted about a month and a half, during which 1,400 people were killed in Paris alone and more in the rest of the country. That's about 30 a day just in Paris. This brought about chaos, and it brought about the reaction that brought down Robespierre. It's known as the Thermidorian Reaction. That's what brought about the fall of Robespierre. Why is it known as the Thermidorian Reaction? Well, that's an interesting side bit about the French Revolution. As part of their radical overthrow of all of French society, the revolutionaries did away with the old calendar. Yeah, they got rid of the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, and they just replaced it. Part of the reason they rejected it was that it was based on the idea of Jesus' resurrection being the beginning of the calendar and the religious calendar, all the saints' days, etc., that were part of the Gregorian calendar. They wanted to completely get rid of it. The French felt like this was a church thing that they needed to undo, and they also wanted it to be more scientific. And it's kind of crazy what they did. Instead of 12 random length months like we have now, they had 12 months clearly grouped into four seasons, and each of the months had 30 days. And here's where it gets really crazy. They changed the length of a week from seven days to 10 days. So they did it away with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. And they had new names for each of the 10 days, and they only got one day off a week. So the 10th day was a day off. They changed up hours and clocks too. Each day had 10 hours and each hour had 100 minutes and each minute had 100 seconds. See, they're trying to do decimals and the metric system and all that and apply it to time and calendars. This meant in the end though, that a second was shorter than the previous seconds had been in the old way of doing things or the way we do things now. In the French revolutionary calendar, a second was 0.864 of the old second. That means it's 86% or a little bit less than the old second. So if you told your wife, honey, I'll get to that in a second, she would have expected you to do it a lot faster. Needless to say, all this time changing didn't really catch on. Most people still counted time and days the old way, but with some official things like laws, they were named according to the new calendar. So there was a law that was passed in the new month of Prairial, named after a prairie in springtime, since it was a spring month, that was known as the law of the 22nd of Prairial. That was the law, by the way, that gave the Jacobins the right to guillotine their enemies, the law of 22nd Prairial. And back to the Thermidorian reaction, it took place in the month of Thermidor, named after the French word for heat because it was a summer month. So it could also have been called the July and August reaction because that's when it happened according to our current Gregorian calendar, but it's known as the Thermidorian reaction because that's what it was called in the revolutionary calendar. And after the Jacobins fell and lost power, the revolutionary calendar was in use still for a couple of more years. It basically stayed in effect until Napoleon, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself there. After the Thermidorian reaction, the reign of terror was basically over. 
During the terror, at least 15,000 and maybe as many as 25,000 Frenchmen and women were killed and over 300,000 were imprisoned. It had a profound effect on the psyche of France and in a sense, France didn't recover until later when Napoleon took over. It was a gruesome and awful period in France and it forever stained the high ideals that the French Revolution began with. You know the slogan, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, which is liberty, equality, and brotherhood? It's really hard to equate liberty with the mass slaughtering of your own citizens just because they don't agree with you politically. Not really living up to the ideals of the slogan, nor the Declaration of the Rights of Man. No, not really. Well, after the Jacobins fell, the nation reacted by moving away from the revolutionary terror and trying to establish a better solution. But the revolution itself was not yet over. The assembly continued to be the governing body. But France was now being challenged on several of its borders by a group of other countries, including the English and the Prussians, and that group was known as the Coalition. In the fall and early winter of 1794, the French army was being beaten on the northern border of France, and in the winter, that winter of 1794, it was a particularly harsh one, and thus conditions in Paris were very bad. Faced with growing unrest in the streets and a sense that they needed someone to take charge, the assembly decided, hey, let's just throw out the old constitution and craft a whole new constitution. So they got rid of the old constitution, they created another constitution, and this one was different. This created a two-house legislature, so an upper house and a lower house, sort of like the Senate and the House of Representatives in the United States, which was designed to slow down the wild swings of policy that had often happened in the assembly. And instead of creating a president, they created a five-man council to be the executive branch of the government. This five-man council was called the Directorate. Well, the new constitution was ratified in September of 1795, and the Directorate took charge of the war effort and it began making some necessary reforms. But the directorate was never very popular, and though it was in charge from late 1795 until 1799, those four years saw the return of a lot of royalist support, as well as ongoing chaos and corruption throughout France. Well, the directorate used the French army as a way of keeping peace, and this was often effective in the short term, but what it led to was that the army began to see itself as being the group that was actually in charge of the country. Well, the ongoing chaos and corruption undermined the people's faith in the directorate, and there was an obvious power vacuum at the top, and several men were trying to seize power. In late 1799, on the 9th of November, which was also known as the 18th of Brumaire, by the revolutionary calendar, a group backed by the army seized power. This is known as the coup of 18 Brumaire, and in the end result, it was the directorate that was removed and it was replaced by a council of three men, which was called the consulate. Now, this is an interesting coincidence, or maybe it's not, but these three men were known as consuls. Where have we heard that before? I'm scratching my head here. Oh yes, Rome. Rome had consuls. The leaders of the Senate were called consuls. 
And what was it that happened to the Roman Republic? Still scratching my head. Oh, yes, it was replaced by an empire. And that's exactly what's about to happen to France. Because guess who the three consuls were? One was Emmanuel Joseph C.A. One was Roger Ducos. And the third was Napoleon Bonaparte. Yep, that very same Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, I think I need to mention how Napoleon got to the point where he was one of the three consuls. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on him here because he's one of those special people who deserves their own episode. So we'll come back to Napoleon next episode. But I need to point out a couple of things that he had done to rise to the kind of prominence where he could force his election as a consul. Napoleon had been in the French army for a while and risen through the ranks rapidly because he was very good at strategy. He showed his ability at every level of the army, and once he had risen to the rank of general, he won some important and spectacular victories. All of this was widely reported in France, partly because Napoleon very intentionally had people in France promoting him, just like Julius Caesar had done, interestingly. Anyway, Napoleon became something of a national hero. He was, in a way, the French equivalent of George Washington. He won some very important battles, and he was seen as an example of French revolutionary virtue. So by the time of the coup of 18 Brumaire, he was already famous in France. And so when he and his cronies, including his brother, had him declared as one of the consuls, no one really complained. And once the consuls, who were clearly led by Napoleon, began to create order out of the ongoing chaos, everyone was actually mostly relieved. The consulate lasted from 1799 until 1804, after which Napoleon had himself crowned emperor. I'll come back to that next episode. But as for this episode, I need to point out that the creation of the consulate on the 18th of Brumaire, okay, on the 9th of November, it's generally considered to be the end of the French Revolution. So unlike the American Revolution, which resulted in a brand new country and a newly created republic, the French Revolution ended with a coup and a dictator. And this points out something that's really unique about the American Revolution. Part of the point of this podcast is to talk about why these really old historical events matter today. And in that vein, part of why the American Revolution is so important is because it's unique. Throughout most of history, when governments change, it's because a weak government is replaced by a dictator. That's just what usually happens. For a group of people to come together like the Founding Fathers did and create a functioning republic and then actually make it work for a couple hundred years, well, that's really unique. What happened in France is more typical. The existing government collapsed, a new government was tried, it failed, and it was replaced by a dictatorship. Dictatorships rise to fill the vacuum of power left by failing governments. That's very typical. So why does the French Revolution, even though it kind of failed, matter to us today? That's the point of the podcast, right? How these events shaped our modern world. One of the major ways that the French Revolution matters today is, as I said, its contrast with the American Revolution. In the case of the American Revolution, you had a group of colonies throwing off the rule of a mother country that was treating them poorly. You also had a group of people who more or less had similar views on monarchy and especially on religion. Most of the American colonies were Protestant and pretty committed to their own faith and their churches. But in France, 
you had widely divergent views on monarchy, on religion, and a lot of people who felt like they just needed to completely reject everything religious or historical. Just can't imagine the founding fathers rejecting the Gregorian calendar, for example, because it was too religious and instituting a totally non-theistic calendar. They just wouldn't have done that. In fact, the American founding fathers were much more likely to have ratified some kind of even more religious calendar rather than rejecting the calendar because it was too religious. Why does this matter? In part because the leaders of the French Revolution lost the support of a lot of their constituents who remained very Catholic, despite the governmental rejection of the influence of the church. It goes back to something I said last episode, that the French were faced with the prospect of rejecting over a thousand years of their own history. And there were a lot of French people who really just didn't want to do that. Nowadays, a lot of people in Western republics like the US, UK, Canada, Australia, France, and other parts of Europe are being asked to reject over a hundred years of political and religious freedom in the name of security, inclusion, and political correctness. There's a parallel. Some people today are willing to embrace a radical rejection of history and of individual rights in the name of progress, or at least in the name of progressivism. Well, one other reason that the French Revolution is important is because of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. It's an incredible example of enlightenment thinking and actually a very good set of ideals that every government ought to follow, though few of them do. Maybe a better way of saying it is that it's an incredible set of ideals that every people should force their government to live by. One of the great ideas of the U.S. Constitution, like I said two episodes ago, was that it starts with the phrase, we the people. The U.S. was very consciously trying to say at the time, that the ideals of the Constitution were the ideals of the people imposed on the government by the people. And here's one of the real differences between the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and it's got implications for ongoing politics today. The French Revolution embraced the Enlightenment ideal that man is perfectible and that given the right education and political environment, mankind will eventually move towards a sort of egalitarian utopia. The American Revolution and the American Founding Fathers did not embrace this ideal at all. Instead, they, the Americans, saw mankind as sinful and prone towards corruption, and they saw that the right type of government was a system that created checks and balances that prevented human greed and selfishness from creating a tyrannical government a government that created just enough law and order to preserve domestic tranquility and to promote justice, as it says in the Constitution, but not a government that infringed on people's unalienable rights, nor a government that was prone to the abuse of tyrants. Another way to see this is that the American Founding Fathers expected government to move in the direction of tyranny, but the French revolutionaries expected government to move towards an egalitarian utopia, if only the old system could be thrown off. They saw the world very differently. I'd say in hindsight that the American founding fathers were right. Government tends to move towards tyranny. It's just a maxim like never get involved in a land war in Asia or never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Government just tends to move towards tyranny. 
It's just the truth of the world, and our current governments seem to be supporting that. But the American founding fathers were right. When you create a government, it needs to keep as much of the power as possible in the hands of the people, or else the government will move in the direction of control and of tyranny. And this is especially true of governments that see themselves as needing to maintain absolute control, like the Committee of Public Safety. Those governments will move in the direction of domestic terror in order to keep the people in line. Domestic terror, again, it's basically the idea that the government will use fear and force rather than the rule of law to control its citizens. This includes things like unwarranted searches, that is, searches without a court-justified warrant, imprisonment without trial, torture, executions, exile, and spying on your own citizens, especially without warrants or due cause. All of these are aspects of domestic terror. There's an amazing book about how this was done in the Soviet Union. It's known as the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was an author who was imprisoned on the flimsiest of reasons, and afterwards he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, and he also wrote a book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich both of which are graphic representations of what it's like to live in a police state. He was talking about the Soviet Union, but it applies to any police state that's using terror against its own citizens. Now, if you'd prefer fiction rather than nonfiction, you could also read Animal Farm or 1984 by George Orwell or Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. These also paint a pretty graphic picture of what it's like to live in a modern police or surveillance state, and they let you see the mindset behind the people who implement domestic terror-type policies. So why does this matter today? Because there are still people who believe that terrorizing your own population is the best way to keep them in line. Do you remember the democracy protests and riots in Hong Kong that were happening in 2019? Do you know what ended them? COVID-19 ended them, and the narrative that there was a killer virus, and that meant that everyone needed to isolate and stay indoors. Those protests didn't end because something changed in the government, some policy or anything. No, they ended because everyone ran inside in fear, and they were kept there by policies of fear and social distancing and forced isolation. It effectively, very effectively, ended those protests. Or how about the Patriot Act in the United States, which was ratified after 9-11? That act authorized widespread domestic spying within the United States without the need of any kind of warrant. It's because of that act that the U.S. government is allowed to listen in on your phone, even if there's no indication that you've done anything wrong. If you say the wrong word into your phone, like insurrection or militia or tax protest, and for sure you say those words, some government computer in some unmarked warehouse will put some kind of digital flag against your name. And if you say that kind of stuff often enough, they will probably assign someone to actively pay attention to you, even though you're a citizen and even though you haven't done anything wrong. Even though the right to protest and the right to change our own government is enshrined in both the Declaration of Independence and the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, it is an inherent right of people to protest and resist their own governments, but yet the government still listens to us as if we're all criminals. The government doesn't like it doesn't like it at all. I think it's fair to say that no citizen ever will say that it's okay for their own government to use domestic terror, no matter what the end. However, if the citizens are scared enough, they will often allow the government to take temporary measures that will keep them safe. 
I say temporary and safe with air quotes around them, because as we know, once the government gains control of something, it is always loath to give up that control. Again, COVID-19 is a good example. All over the world, governments, both national and local, grabbed onto the idea of emergency powers and used them to enforce all kinds of measures that were not created through the normal process of legislation because no one would have ever voted for them. And in a lot of places, the governments were also very slow to let go of those emergency powers, including in France. Now, back in the French Revolution, it basically took mob action in the streets to change what the government was doing, whether it was the royals or the far right or the far left or the Jacobins, whoever. When they were in control, those people used some kind of terror to control their enemies and to control the people, and it took mob action to remove them. But once that group was removed, the new group that was put into place, especially in the French Revolution, carried on the same types of policies of domestic terror as the previous group had done. As the famous British political philosopher Peter Townsend said in his excellent treatise about regime change, won't get fooled again, the party on the left is now the party on the right, and the beards have all grown longer overnight. No matter the ideology, left or right, governments, if not restrained by the law or by their own people, will tend towards tyranny. It's just a fact of life. And we see all this pretty clearly in the chaos of the French Revolution and the reign of terror. Next episode, we're going to stay in France just a little bit longer than we should, and thus we're going to get a little bit out of sequence, but at least we'll stay on topic. Chronologically, we need to go back to the new world and talk about John Adams, who's also cool enough to get his own episode. But before we get to him, we need to talk about someone even cooler, more deserving of an episode or two to himself. Join me next episode when we talk about one of the greatest generals who ever lived, and the eventual emperor of France, Napoleon.